My name is Charles Strait, and I am the pastor of the Faith United Methodist Church, and you are listening to Moral Justice. Moral Justice is the offering of the social justice ministry of the Faith United Methodist Church. Our social justice ministry is entitled The Next Movement. We believe that social justice is at the heart of the Christian faith and that we must live out the faith that we confess in our hearts so that the world will see Jesus in the work that we do. Hello and welcome to Moral Justice. I'm talking this week uh, to the Reverend Dr. Zachary W. Mills, uh, who's a communication scholar and ordained minister uh, who studies race, religion, uh, media, and popular culture. He's the author of a wonderful book called The Last Blues Preacher. It's a biography of the Reverend Clay Evans, who is just my mentor and a civil rights icon uh, here in Chicago. He graduated from the Western Kentucky University in 2003 with a major in print journalism and a minor in religious studies. Uh, Zach has two master's degrees from Vanderbilt University, a master's of divinity emphasizing social Social Justice, and a Master's of Arts focusing on African-American preaching. Uh, Zach recently earned his Ph.D. in Rhetoric and Public Culture from Northwestern University. Uh, Through his writings and speaking uh, and, and consulting work, Dr. Mills works to inspire change and to help people find and develop authentic voices, especially within unfamiliar and even hostile uh, cultural landscapes. So, He works to create change in others. Uh, He has a blog that is called Wise Lunacy, in which he provides a creative uh, inspiration and strategy for overcoming serious and sometimes humorous challenges uh, for people in their personal and professional lives. Uh, Dr. Mills is a storyteller who uh, uses the power of words to empower people to be the best version of themselves and to find common ground despite social, cultural, and religious, or even political differences. It is such a great honor to have a conversation with you, uh, Dr. Zachary W. Mills. How are you? I am great, Charles, and thank you so much for having me on. I think these conversations that you're having are so important, and it is just such an honor and a blessing for me to be on here with you. So thank you so much. I appreciate that, and I want to tell you, first of all, I appreciate uh, your book. The Last Blues Preacher is a wonderful um, tribute to my mentor. I grew up at the Fellowship Baptist Church uh, under uh, Reverend Clay Evans, and he has been such an inspiration to me. And uh, all these years, uh, being able to soak in his wisdom and seeing um, the way that he lived his life and seeing the things that he has done has been a huge inspiration to me. And so I want to say thank you for putting that in writing in such a way that I think honors him and gives him a wonderful, wonderful legacy. I mean, he's done all of these great things, so the legacy is his life, and it has it already uh, there. But for generations to come, to be able to pick up your book and read the challenges, the faithfulness, and all of the things uh, that uh, Reverend Evans represents for so many of us is is outstanding. And thank you very much uh, for writing The Last uh, Blues Preacher. Oh, thank you so much, Charles. It was was just a a privilege to write, and it was so much fun to to write and to research um, Reverend Evans' life. And, you know, it, it I felt it was a good sign that I was on the right track when, um, as I was writing, I felt like I was getting so much out of um, the lessons that his life teaches us. So um, it, it really, I, I feel like I, I got so much, much more than I've, I've given. So it, it was just a, a wonderful privilege. That's, that's wonderful. I, I, I was reading some of the endorsements for the book, and, and the one that stands out uh, was from um, Brad Braxton, uh, who's the director yes. of the Center for um, African-American Religious Life at the Smithsonian National Museum of African-American History and Culture. And he said the voice of uh, Reverend Clay Evans, the legacy, uh, legendary Chicago pastor and social activist, uh, reverberates throughout this marvelous book uh, with an author's passion, uh, a poet's passion, and a professor's 
precision. Zach Mills chronicles Evans' uh, tremendous faith and audacious, audacious creativity. This faith enables Evans to overcome social barriers for the sake of social justice. This creative uh, empower, uh, creativity rather empowered Evans to use broadcast media as an electronic pulpit from which he, was in, he has inspired so many. After reading The Last Blues Preacher, you won't have the blues anymore. You will sing the gospel. And I just thought that was such a tremendous endorsement and such an yes. accurate description of what knowing um, uh, Reverend Evans is, is like. Um, but I want to take a little bit of time and talk to you about mm-hmm. Zach Mills. Uh, you sure. have, in a short period of time, uh, you have become a lot of people. And so I want to ask you a little bit about what it is to be you. I know uh, from our personal relationship that you come uh, to your family as an adopted child. What was that like coming into this world, being raised by people who were not your biological parents? Wow. Um, I think that the, it's a great question, Charles, and I think... Um, the, the, the best way to answer that is to say uh, a few things. First, I have no basis to compare. So for me, this feels normal <laughs> in, in many ways. In many ways. I was adopted, um, went into foster care uh, with this family when I was four months old. And, um, so, and I was adopted by the same family when I was two. So the only memories I have in this world of parents are with these parents and with brothers and sisters are with the ones that I have. So, um, so in, in many ways, it's just felt normal. In, in many other ways, it has not felt, um, it has often felt um, uh, peculiar uh, because I was adopted into a very mixed race household. Uh, the family joke is that we look like the United Nations. Um, okay. <laughs> that's, that's what we all kind of laugh about because I'm biracial. I'm half black and I'm half white. And I have a sister who's my biological sister, half black and half white. My older sister is white and my parents are white. My older sister is um, my parents' biological child. And then my older brother is South Korean. Uh, oh and then my, I have a younger a brother. Yeah. Korean family. <laughs> Absolutely. And I have a younger brother uh, who is my biological, who is adopted by another white family, but who lives now here in my hometown of Nash, uh, Murfreesboro. So it, it, that was interesting growing up. Um, when you get picked up from school, when you're playing on sports teams, and you're having to explain who your family is. That that was annoying and challenging. And um, then, you know, people are trying to figure out uh, what kind of race are you? And so you, you, sometimes you get bullied. So um, I've, I've had a lot of different experiences, um, some challenging and many more positive um, you know, because I've, I've been adopted into a mixed race household, but, um, and then there's so many more things I could tell you, but, uh, so that's a little bit about what it's like to, to kind of grow up, um, adopted. So it sounds like your parents were amazing people, uh, that oh, yes. not only did they have their own biological child, but then mm-hmm. four other adopted children from all over the place. Tell me a little yes. bit about them. What was it like growing up with them? Oh goodness, my my parents are just the most wonderful people uh, you could ever meet. For from the very beginning, um, the earliest memories I have, um, they always let us know we knew we were adopted. My, you know, it was never. I mean, obviously, this, at a certain point, you kind of look in the mirror and say, "Hmm, something's a little <laughs> off." <laughs> but but I, I always what I really appreciate about my parents is even as a youngster, under nine years old. Um, five and six, I knew I was adopted and we were having conversations about um, that reality. And they always told me if there was ever a point when I had questions about my, my biological history, um, about my biological parents, 
um, that they could I could ask any question. No question was off the table, and they they always made sure I knew if I if I came to a point in my life where I wanted to meet them, that they were a hundred and fifty percent supportive, and they would make sure that I had everything I needed so that that could happen. So they they were just uh, you know I don't they were sent from God. I mean they're they're just the most amazingly gracious and kind and loving people, and I got. So so blessed to have them as parents, and they just um, they just filled me with so much love and support that even when I would encounter challenges and when I wrestled with my own racial identity, you know, as a biracial kid, and you know, you're 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 kind of pulled in different directions as as you know, you're 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 growing up and trying to find yourself. Uh, they, I, there was always so much love to help me find my way. Mm-hmm. What was that like for you um, as a kid? Um, not necessarily identifying uh, mm-hmm. in one place or another. I mean, you, you are half black, half white, living mm-hmm. with white parents. Um, how does that, as a particularly, I think, as teenagers, kind of come into yeah. their own and be kind of uh, kind of become their own person? How, what did that feel like in, in identifying? First of all, let me back up and ask: What kind mm-hmm. of people were you surrounded by, and how mm-hmm. did you navigate that? As, as a kid growing up? Yeah, that's another really good question. Um, for, let's see, I'd say the first 18 years of my life, I was around primarily uh, white kids. Most of my closest friends were white. And, you know, that it makes sense if, if both of your parents are white, there's a certain kind of cultural um, familiarity that you're, you're around. And, um, you know, so it also had to do with where we lived. My parents... Um, you know, we, the, the, the neighborhood we lived in, a lot of the kids around the neighborhood were white. Um, and so my closest friends growing up were white. And, um, but, you know, as I, as I got to be 18 and went to college and I was around a whole different group of people, um, it, it almost, it just kind of switched and flipped where I, I was now around more, more black folk, more black friends were my closest friends in, in college. And so part of that is, you know, the 18 years old, there's been this part of my life where I've been nurturing um, this one part of me. And I just um, I just did not have very many close black friends growing up. So there was this other part of me um, that I was trying to come into and get to know and become more in touch with and explore. And um, so that that really happened in college. And so, um, outside of college and grad school, it's, it, it becomes at that point, um, I, I was so much more cosmopolitan. I mean, I was so much more exposed in graduate school to so many people from around the world and different races and that kind of thing. So, um, but that, you know, it just, it kind of went in, in waves. Uh, the first half, of my life was really around white people. The, the, the next half um, after 18 was really primarily around um, black people. And so um, I, I just, I really, and that was me really trying to, um, to become more familiar with both sides of myself. Did you have um, any points in your life where maybe at home there was some difference in you uh, mm-hmm. as you navigated through these different parts of yourself? Uh, mm-hmm. Was there ever, you know, conversation about how um, your friends mm-hmm. may have changed, which, you know, in mm-hmm. some ways kind of changes your perspective because, you sure. know, w- when you are in one culture dealing with one race of people, there's one perspective about life and about being. Uh, and then when yeah. you have a, an opportunity to encounter a different group of people that might bring about a different perspective. And then you are somewhere in the middle where you have mm-hmm. both perspectives. How did, how did that kind of work out at home and amongst your yeah. other friends? Yeah. Um, so the interesting thing about my parents is um, they, <laughs> they, when they adopted children of color in the early 80s, um, it was, you know, a different time in our nation's history. Um, and a lot of the social workers were concerned about whether or not it was a good thing um, in the child, if it was in the child's best interest, a, a child of color to be raised by 
white parents. And my parents were always of the mindset that if they provided us with enough love and stability, that that would be enough for us to to be able to find our way for for them to support us uh, as we're trying to nat- you know figure out who we are. If we did have issues with identity, they always believed that if there was enough love there, that 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 a way would be provided for a child of color to to find all the things that they needed to feel whole. And so. Uh, it, 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 I, I imagine it must have been weird for my parents as I, as I started to, like, as I grew up when I was younger, my hair was curlier and straighter, kind of straight curls. Um, as I got older, it became, um, I, <laughs> I'm trying to think of a, 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 an appropriate term, a, a lot less curls. Coarser. Okay. Um, <laughs> just coarser. And um, so I was trying to, I had to figure out different things to do with my hair. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'd, I had to go to different barbers. And so, you know, that, that was an interesting experience. And I'm, I'm having my parents drop me off at black barber shops. And, you know, was, they always seemed comfortable. There, there was not, so, um, and then, you know, when I, I'm, you know, starting to wear wave caps, you know, as I'm managing my hair and I'm walking through the house with wave caps. And I imagine it must have been an interesting, a different experience for my parents. But it, it was always, there was, there was never this sense in which I was doing something that, um, seemed to, 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 to be weird, you know? Um, and so that was pretty amazing. Um, and then my friends, as, as, as these kinds of things are, as I'm kind of developing and, and kind of uh, becoming a fuller personality and be, becoming more familiar with my whole self, um, you know, I always had the best friends. And I think the way that I like to think about it, Charles, is, because I, I, I was such an odd kid, and I say odd just because I was different, and I, I have really come to celebrate that. Um, but because I was so different, it, it, the, the people, the friends that I had in my life were really special. They, they, were, they were people that, that they got my family. They got us. So the ones that stuck around, the ones that were in my life and that were close, they were really special. They were so versatile. They, they, they were they were so forward thinking, so broad minded and, and intuitively. So, I mean, these were kids and, um, you know, elementary school, those people that gravitated around me that accepted me and embraced me, they just were so wonderfully special. And, and that continued throughout my life, whether it was high school and whether it was college, whether it was grad school, those people that were my tribe that, that found their way into my life and that I kept, um, they, they always made room for me to, to, to be myself. And, and even as I'm exploring uh, and still exploring, you know, what it means to be biracial um, and how to, what does it mean to, to fully embrace that, especially now in this, this very tense racial climate in the United Absolutely. States. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And so, so um, that's the really cool thing about this whole, this whole life of mine is that whether it was my parents, whether it was my friends, those that were in my life and that were with me along the way were just the most special kind. And, and they helped make that, the awkwardness of, of trying to figure out your identity and um, then the best moments of, of kind of coming into yourself. They made all of that so much better. So you, you studied race and religion and popular culture. Does, that, does your life growing up, do you think that influenced the direction you would go into in 100%. your um, scholarly work and in, in, in your, um, you know, your work in the world? You also um, you, you did a Master's of Divinity emphasizing social justice. How, mm-hmm. how do you see that work of social justice um, really being defined by who you are. And what does social justice mean to you? That's, that's, mm-hmm. a, that's a bigger question I'd like to ask. Yeah. So to your first question, absolutely. My experience growing up um, as a biracial child in a, a multiracial house absolutely 100% influenced my academic journey to study communication, preaching in grad school, um, print journalism, written communication in college, preaching in grad school, and then communication and rhetoric in general in my doctoral work because I found um, early on 
that even as a youngster, there were, you know, when we moved from Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I was born, to Murfreesboro, Tennessee, in the South, in 1989, race was so much more of an issue all of a sudden. Yeah. Everybody was talking about race, and we were getting all these kinds of weird looks in restaurants. And so I, I was always having to talk about race, whether it was trying to explain why I look different from my parents, why these people were picking me up from a soccer game, and who are they? Um, so I was always talking about race in some way, um, navigating my identity, even if these conversations were in my head. And I quickly learned that um, I, I became really good at managing issues of race because I was having to live in two worlds. And I was having to speak different languages um, as I'm navigating these worlds. And then I'm doing translations for people like my parents as I, <laughs> you know, bring things home. Or I'm, bringing, I'm doing translations for my friends about my upbringing and my parents and my family. And so I was fascinated with, with this. While I, the kind of, <laughs> when you're going through it as a kid, you know, childhood is, is often very awkward for any child, but especially a biracial kid growing up in a multiracial <laughs> household. And you think, you kind of feel like, oh God, this is really tough. But then you get to a point where you see the blessing in it for someone like me who really learned how to speak multiple languages and to see the benefit of being able to, to negotiate both worlds and help different people go in and out of them. And so I was fascinated with the power of language, the power of words to bring people together to cross different divides. And I saw my father, who was a speech, who was a speech pathologist at the VA hospital um, for, for almost 40 years. He worked with people who had traumatic brain injuries, uh, Vietnam War, Gulf War, Iraq War, and people who had traumatic brain injuries that it affected their speech. So my father spent his professional life helping people overcome deficient speech. Yeah. That fundamentally influenced my journey into helping people overcome another kind of deficient speech as it relates to talking about race, finding one's voice, navigating different racial divides. So, so absolutely, communication. My mother actually got her undergraduate degree in speech pathology, too. So it was uh, in my whole life. Social justice. Um, because I grew up the way I did, I was constantly seeing my parents, the way that they reached out to people. It, race was, it was always about, I watched my dad one day, we were in a restaurant, just me and him eating. We were, I was a kid. He sees this Hispanic um, mother and child trying to cross a busy street. And the mother got across and the child was still on the other side. So he gets out of the, he just stands up out of the restaurant, walks out and helps the child across. And he comes back and sits down. And he keeps eating. He doesn't say anything. And I, I said, well, I said to my dad, did, did the mother at least say thank you? And he looked up, up at me almost with contempt. He said, no. He, he said, she shouldn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. That doesn't matter if she said thank you. What, what mattered was there was someone that needed help. Mm -hmm. And that was my experience with my parents. It was, it was always important to help, to use what you had to serve others. And that was, those were the lessons I learned as a kid, just watching my parents interact with the world. And it was always so giving and hospitable. And so, so for me, that was, those were the models I had and just very loving parents. And so uh, that's as I got to Vanderbilt Divinity School and I'm, I, am, I am beginning this journey to learn um, what it means to train to be a minister, to serve others. I had those, those models and memories with me. And so social justice for me is, um, you know, there's all kinds of ways to describe it. It's helping those who are in need. That, that's the best. I mean, I can come up with a more sophisticated answer with all my degrees in communication. I, I can do that. But, <laughs> but, 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 but for me, the best and most honest and genuine answer I can give comes out of my experience and my family. And it is, it is helping those who are in need, helping those who may not be in a position to help themselves, helping those who have, are, are being hurt by other people, by other institutions, 
um, by, by other uh, experiences and traumas. So it's helping people, and that's, that's what I understand my work to be in, as a minister, as a communication scholar, it's helping folks. So I, I agree with you 100%, and I, I, but mm-hmm. the problem that I have, and, mm-hmm. and I'd love to hear your point of view uh, on yes. this, is that um, way too often as people of faith, um, mm-hmm. we believe uh, that helping people is uh, feeding them when they're hungry, uh, <laughs> right. it's giving them clothes when they are naked, um, mm-hmm. it's going to see them when they're in prison. Uh, but way yeah. too often, it is not about correcting the injustice that causes people in the richest country in the world to be hungry yeah. in the first place or correcting uh, a criminal justice system that imprisons more people than any other country in the world, or correcting mm-hmm. a system that is, um, has in its core institutionalized racism that allows mm-hmm. a certain group or groups of people to have to languish in poverty. And that yes. faith, for me, uh, really does have to include an element that Mm -hmm. um, causes us to go beyond Mm -hmm. putting Band-Aids on the sore and really curing the disease. So so I'd love to hear your perspective about um, the the justice of faith Mm -hmm. um, that that causes us to become uh, different than just worshipers who hand Mm -hmm. out, you know, food or clothes. Absolutely. Yes. So I agree 100%. And I think that's a very important point to make, Charles, that oftentimes uh, people of faith, many people of faith, when they think about social justice, it's, it's in a very um, shallow uh, way. It's a, it's a very shallow notion of, of social justice, and that involves treating, treating sim- symptoms and not root causes. Um, yeah. So, yeah, and I, 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 so I think it, it makes a lot of Christians feel really good about themselves when they go to the soup kitchen, when they um, do the, the, the clothing drive, when they um, go out and, and, and feed the homeless. And all of those things are certainly important and necessary for people of faith to do. But right. social justice, the, the other, there's another component of social justice, and it also means we, we, we need to treat symptoms because without treating symptoms, symptoms become infected. Okay. That's right. But, but we also need to dedicate ourselves to treating the conditions that make the symptoms manifest. And that's an aspect of social justice that a lot of people, a, a lot of people of faith have not yet thought enough about how they will participate in. Some of that's because of it's inconvenient to do, to really put the time and energy into that kind of work. Sometimes it's because it's scary. Yeah. Um, there's a certain cost involved, whether that be what will this community or that community say about you if, you, if you're involved with this group of people that others have kind of cast aside or look at outcasts. Um, so there's a lot of reasons why people are not really involved in the, the treatment of systematic injustice or, or root causes of injustice. Um, but, but I think that's where a lot of the work of the church, uh, that's a big, a big place, a big growing edge of the church, is mobilizing and training people for that aspect of social justice work, um, treating root causes. And I think that there are some interesting examples in Scripture where um, Jesus is, 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 is attempting to, to, to is, is doing both. He's treating symptoms, and he's dealing with root causes. Uh, when he's healing sick folk, you know, he, he's, he's, he's treating symptoms. Um, yeah. But then he also goes into the, the house of God and turns over tables and acts a fool because yeah. <laughs> there's systematic injustice. There is embezzlement happening yeah. in the church. There's discrimination, forcing Jews and Gentiles to enter the temple through separate, separate doors. Yeah. Uh, so, 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 so he is, in that scene, engaged in radical, radical uh, social justice work that is attempting to address root causes 
that are causing very traumatic symptoms of poverty, of exploitation, of racial discrimination and racial terror. So I think there are some wonderful examples in Scripture that if churches are more intentional about teaching, they can do a great job mobilizing people to do both, treating symptoms and, and systematic injustice. Absolutely, absolutely. One of my favorite examples of that, um, in addition to the, the money changers, is also the encounter of the woman at the well. It, it, it was mm-hmm. uh, not uh, just, a, just a scenario in which he's offering salvation to her and to um, the women in her um, village, but it is also him uh, changing the dynamic between men and women, yes, uh, which right. he first acknowledges by saying, you know, I'm a woman, what are you asking me? Uh, but but, but <laughs> we, we miss those um, yes. things that Jesus is teaching us by the, uh, uh, about how to live with one another and how uh, to uh, change the world in which we live in uh, because right. we get so caught up in the easy stuff. Um, I, oh, yes. I also want to ask you kind of like how – how did you get to this point in your life? What was faith like for you growing up that caused you to spend so many years in school uh, <laughs> learning to become a great preacher? Yes. So that's a wonderful question. If I, if I could, before I answer that, I want to just go back really quickly to the social justice question. As, I, you, as you were talking, it, some things just jumped in my head, if that's okay. Sure, absolutely. Okay. So another thing that I'm, I'm seeing and that I'm guilty of, and that many people of faith are guilty of, and many pastors are guilty of, is when we're looking and critiquing churches and, and, and we say, um, we're trying to, to understand why, why there's not enough, or why there are some churches and people of faith that are struggling with that next step to, to actually start targeting root causes instead of just symptoms. Um, there, there's this thing that's happening where a lot of progressive Christians, who are, and, and Christians in general, whether they're progressive or conservative, who, who care about social justice issues, have mastered the rhetoric of social justice, mm-hmm. but are still struggling with the fear of actually embodying what that rhetoric entails, yeah. because there's fear of what the cost of actually living out the rhetoric of social justice will be. <laughs> so I think that if we're being honest, many of us struggle with this. And, and I, as I said to others, I know all, I mean, I'm trained in communication. I know how to make congregations hucklebuck and act a fool. I know the right things to say, to push a yeah. congregation's button, to get them to holler. I know how to do that. And, and, and that's, it's not to say that that's wrong, but if it stops there, then it's wrong. That yeah. rhetoric must move from inciting emotion. It must move from there, and it must help people understand and embrace that aspect of faith that goes into the streets, that challenges powers and principalities, and steps across the line in order to start addressing systematic injustice and not just symptoms. But we, 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 we've mastered that rhetoric well enough that when we speak it from the pulpit and we make folk shout and holler and, and feel emotion, that we leave congregational worship oftentimes feeling like we're actually embodying fully social justice ministries when we're, we're, we're actually not yet going far enough. So just wanted to say that. And, and I, I appreciate you saying that, too, because it, it also um, reminds me that part of my thinking along those lines is that we have a fear um, of where social justice takes us, right? Because yes. the, the more you engage in this concept of justice for everybody based on God's sense of justice for the world, mm-hmm. the more it causes you to examine yourself. And it it causes you to look at your own racism, to look at your own bigotry, to look at your own phobias, to look at ways that perhaps you've interpreted Scripture that wasn't talking about the um, social justice of helping the poor or helping the uh, people who are sick or helping people who are in prison. But maybe it takes you to a place of 
looking at Black Lives Matter and thinking about what it means to truly be a black person who grows up with institutionalized racism as a part of the way uh, they see everyday life and what privilege means as a male or as a white male or white person in general or what homophobia looks like when you start to engage in these conversations about justice it makes you start to wonder where We've been too small, and how God is trying to make us into bigger people. And for some people, that's really a frightening thought, because I've had this way of living my entire life. I was taught these things by an institution called the church, in which I put all of my faith in, and I cannot (laughs) say that those things could have been wrong. And so I think that it is fear that keeps a lot of people from moving in the direction of real justice and understanding God's ability uh, to uh, value all people and to want all people to have the same thing. So if I have a safe environment to live in, God wants you to have a safe environment to live in. And what's keeping you from having that? Is it my own investments? that make my Mm. retirement secure? Do I have Mm. to go back and look at where my money is being spent? Is it my own uh, desire to live amongst my tribe that keeps you from being able to move into my neighborhood because I'm not comfortable with, you know, somebody that doesn't look like me or speak Mm -hmm. like me or act like me. So I think all of those are kinds of reasons that we as people of faith are not invested in this onward, forward movement of justice um, for the people that are around us and maybe not even in close proximity, but people around the world and and in the communities Mm -hmm. that we live in. So I'm going to get back to my other question, which is how was your faith life growing up uh, Mm -hmm. influenced, uh, maybe not influenced, but how did it influence you becoming who you are? Yes. So very much so. Um, Early on, faith was experienced much more traditionally in a church setting. So when I was born and adopted, I I grew up um, attending uh, just a few years, to about the time I was nine, uh, at a Presbyterian church in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And I distinctly remember vacation Bible school and, um, you know, going out and we they would give us rocks with different colored silver rocks and gold rocks. And we would, you know, just like in Jesus' day, we'd go out and barter and we'd exchange. And we'd, it was this whole um, kind of reliving scenes from Jesus' time as a way to kind of connect with the biblical stories. And that was so important to me. And I remember sitting in church, as most kids do, and we're not concerned. It's like kind of Charlie Brown's teacher when we are a kid and you hear the preacher, it's just like, wonk, 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 wonk. You don't really <laughs> understand. It's just like this foreign language. And so you find everything else in the world to do, play and diffuse and you get in trouble. And But I remember one day at this church and I said, I'm going to really try to listen so, because there's, there's, there's this thing that's happening where we show up here and everybody's focused on this person preaching. And I remember one day really dialing in and trying. I, I, for the life of me, I cannot remember what this preacher was saying, what he was saying. But I remember the moment when I acknowledged something really special was happening. And, and I, for a moment tried to understand what that was. Now, when we moved to, to Ann Arbor in 89, I really didn't go to church. The kids fought my parents. Uh, we didn't want to go to church. We didn't know anybody <laughs> here. And, you know, so they, eventually my parents gave up, and so we didn't have to go. My parents would go to a Disciples of Christ Church um, they, that they attended for the last 25 years. They recently left and gone to an Episcopal church. Um, but off and on, um, the kids, we would have to go during Christmas, uh, during Easter, uh, those kinds of moments, high holy days, we'd go, begrudgingly we'd go, kicking and screaming. <laughs> um, so I, you know, and so I, those kinds of moments, um, 
there, I don't have a lot of memories, but there, uh, because I was hardly in church. But when I would go, there, there were poignant moments, like one Easter sunrise that we did an Easter sunrise service out at um, here in Murfreesboro in Middle Tennessee. There are all these uh, Civil War sites from, um, you know, battles that happened. And there was a sunrise service at uh, the Civil War site. And I remember the preacher's sermon. This was, oh, God, I can't remember how old I was, a youngster. And um, the preacher talked about eternal life. And he said, eternal life is like, a rock that's 100 miles wide and 100 miles tall and 100 miles deep and 100 miles in every direction. And every year a sparrow comes and perches on the rock and grinds its beak. Eternal life is as long as it would take that bird to grind away that stone. And I, that, was, that was meaningful to me. Um, and so those kinds of moments would happen. But it was really when I, and, and it was odd, a, a family member would die and then I would make, a vow to God. Like I remember when my grandfather died, um, my mom's father, I, I prayed the prayer. I said, God, I will, I will read the Bible cover to cover. I just felt, I, I just made that promise and I eventually did. And, but so spirituality, even if I wasn't in church, there was something humming in me always, a deep and profound spirituality. My home was a Christian home, even though I didn't go, didn't go to church regularly. God, Christ was always in the house in the example of my parents and how they talked to us and treated us and bedtime stories they read and that kind of thing. Um, it sounds like so, it. And I want to ask you about your call then. So mm-hmm. how do you get from this kid who didn't want to go to church uh, <laughs> to, yes. to answering God's call for your life into ministry? Absolutely. It, it really is um, the story. It, it, it was a humming inside of me, a call that it was in me from as, for as long as I can remember that I didn't know. I didn't discern it as a call to ministry because I was never in church. Um, and so the earliest, the earliest that I can remember it would be in elementary school, fourth grade, fifth grade. And there was just this profound, profound passion for people. And during career day, they asked us what we wanted to be. And I just kind of gave a, a standard answer that kids give a doctor, lawyer, whatever, and a police officer. But when I said those things, they didn't feel like they were fulfilling this passion I had inside of me. And this passion just kept growing, Charles, and growing to the point it would stress me out. I'm like, what the heck is this thing? What am I supposed to be doing with my life? It just, it, it was beyond explanation, but it was just this burning. Um, and when I got to college, I started attending a Bible study, and every single person I met, it just the random, most random person or stranger off the street was a pastor. I just kept meeting pastors and ministers <laughs> everywhere. And so a girl I was dating in college, um, at the tail end of college, I, I was graduating. This girl I was dating, her aunt was a pastor of a church. And I started to ask her aunt questions about things I was feeling and things I was thinking. And she really helped me understand that this thing that was in me was a, a, a call to ministry. And I had a sense of this when I started attending this Bible study in college and eventually started teaching it. But definitely when, when Reverend Lisa Lewis Balboa started helping me understand these things from her own, her own experience. And then in 2004, I, she gave me my first opportunity to preach in her church, a small church, Phillips Chapel CME Church in rural Kentucky, in Elkton, Kentucky. And in 2004, as a 23-year-old, I preached my first sermon. And (laughs) as I was standing up there in that pulpit, Charles, I said, my God, I am finally doing something that fulfills this feeling I've had since I was a child. And right after that, mm -hmm, right after that, I enrolled in Vanderbilt Divinity School. Oh, that is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. That is absolutely mm-hmm. phenomenal. So tell me, uh, last question, um, mm-hmm. tell me how your work as a preacher and mm-hmm. your studies uh, as a public speaker, as a um, writer, have converged to make you who you are. How, how do you serve the world um, mm-hmm. through what you've learned? Mm-hmm. 
That's a really great question. I think my, my most special moments in my life are laying in bed as a child and having my mother and father tell us bedtime stories. Mm-hmm. They are both, and my father especially, marvelous storytellers. And I feel I best serve the world as a storyteller. I feel fundamentally that whether that's as a writer, as a preacher, as a communication scholar, what I think I'm up to fundamentally is telling stories, telling stories that open and expand constricted imaginations so that others are able to imagine more fuller, more imaginative, more abundant lives for themselves. So I do that. I think that that's, for me, how I best understand what it is I'm up to. I'm telling stories. I'm telling stories to inspire um, through my writing, through my preaching, through my my teaching, um, to help people live into better worlds, to live more fully into their callings, to see themselves more clearly as God sees them, to see the liberating ways forward, and to see the, the, the things that are holding them back. Um, so that's, I think for me, those different parts of my life, um, and I appreciate, they, they haven't always seemed like they've related. <laughs> so, so I appreciate now this place you know, this degree in print journalism and working as a reporter, then going to grad school and, and really training to, to, to be a minister and to excel at preaching, and then this move to uh, communication studies and being a communication scholar, they have often felt like separate paths, and that has sometimes been the source of a lot of my anxiety, like, oh, my God, have I wasted my life um, in school, <laughs> you know? But now I've I've come to this place of clarity where I see each of them serving very unique purposes, and ultimately all of them are working together to help me be the best, most compelling and compassionate storyteller um, that I can be so that I can help people um, to, to be the best versions of themselves possible so that they, in their own way, can open up things and, um, and to be uh, agents of hope and love to others. Well, I, I am certainly uh, sure that the work that you do with your students and the work that you do with people that you encounter along your journey uh, must do just that because um, when I look at your work through um, the uh, story that you tell in The Last Blues Preacher, uh, Reverend Clay Evans' Black Lives and the Faith that, the faith that Woke the Nation, I can see just that. I can see uh, mm. this wonderful ability to tell stories um, that um, brings the legacy and life of Pastor Evans um, to, to, to your uh, thinking as you read through the book. I, I think it mm. is just phenomenal and that you did a um, masterful job of telling that story. Um, I love the way that Victor Anderson um, of Vanderbilt Divinity School puts it. He says that uh, Miles' biography of Reverend Clay Evans brings into the cultural focus the sound, the passion, and uh, the commitments of one of the most recognized voices uh, in the history of black preaching and gospel musicology uh, of the 21st century. Reverend Evans reminded um, many of us growing up in Chicago every Sunday evening that there is room at the cross for you. Mill's Mm. biography is a monumental gift to the black religious and cultural legacy of Reverend Evans, and I absolutely agree with that. And I am so grateful for um, Fortress Press for um, uh, uh, printing this book that you wrote. Uh, I am glad that Amazon has this book available for anybody who mm-hmm. wants to go out there and purchase it. And uh, I'm pretty sure that folk can um, go to your website uh, and find it Absolutely. as well. Is that right? Absolutely. They can go to zmills.com and find the book there as well. 
And if you want to follow uh, Reverend Dr. Zachary Mill on social, Mills on social media, you can find him on Instagram at Zach.W.Mills. If you want to find him on Facebook, he is at Zach.W.Mills on Facebook and at Zach W. Mills on Twitter. It has been an incredible joy uh, to have this conversation with you. I am so grateful that we had this time to talk, and I am so grateful that you are inspiring young people uh, to be the best themselves that they can be. Also, people should uh, follow your blog, Wise Lunacy, uh, and uh, get some inspiration there because you seem to have plenty of it to give. (laughs) Also... I don't want to miss an opportunity to tell folks that you're going to be in Chicago on yeah. the uh, week of weekend of the 23rd and 24th. And if I'm not mistaken, you will be preaching right here at Faith Church on Sunday, the, uh, June 24th, the fourth Absolutely. Sunday in June. So they That's should uh, come out to Dalton to 15 Grant Street at 11 o'clock, and they can hear you uh, right here at Faith United Methodist Church. I can't wait. We're going to have a lot of fun. I am looking forward to it. Dr. Mills, it's been a wonderful uh, opportunity to talk to you, and I look forward uh, to your next project and more reasons that we ought to get together and have some more conversation. Uh, Dr. Zachary Mills, you can find him all over the Internet, and please, by all means, go out and buy The Last Blues Preacher, Reverend Clay Evans' Black Lives and the Faith That Woke the Nation. Thank you so much, Charles. This has been just so much fun and we'll have to do it again yes sir take care this podcast moral justice has been an offering of the faith united methodist church where i charles Strait, serve as the pastor there we are located at 15015 grant street in dalton illinois if you're ever in the area please come and worship with us you can find our um webpage at www.faithunitedmc.com. You can find me on Facebook or Twitter at Pastor Charles Strait. Uh, I look forward to more conversations uh, with you in the future and great guests that will come and participate in those conversations. Until next time, uh, be blessed and make the world a more moral and just place.